Let me invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's been a blessing today to sing with God's people. Uh, Praise to the Lord. And I always love to hear the sound of many people praying across our auditorium, lifting up our voices to God in prayer. I, uh, I I hope we see the importance and value of gathering and uh, striving by God's grace for our assembly to be a place that's recognized as prayer-filled. We're working our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, really wanting to let what Paul says here control our thinking so that we have our minds shaped and conformed to the Word of God about uh, the work of God in and, and among his people. Uh, we, this is the third message, so I'm going to give you a quick summary of the first two just to keep it all in order in our heads. The first thing we looked at was that being genuinely spiritual means that you have the Spirit of God. You're rightly related to the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be spiritual and the The fundamental baseline evidence of that is the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. So it's not some uh, spectacular thing. It's not some, uh, and I'm going to use this word, even though I hesitate, because you don't actually confess Jesus as Lord without a supernatural work, but, but the mark isn't some kind of supernatural thing, right? It actually looks fairly simple, and ordinary to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But that can only be done by the work of the Spirit because the natural man, way back in chapter 2, does not receive the things of God, neither can he know them because he considers them to be foolish. So the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, if it has any genuineness to it, is the work of the Holy Spirit, which means that you are spiritual in the truest sense. Spiritual is not some second-tier level of the Christian life. We don't go from natural man to carnal Christian to spiritual. We go from natural to spiritual. You either don't have the Spirit or you have the Spirit. And, And then those who are spiritual may be wrestling with obedience, they may be evidencing immaturity, but that doesn't mean they stopped being people of the Spirit. So Paul establishes the baseline with the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, which can only be made, verse 3 says, by the Holy Spirit. So, So that's the evidence that sort of makes the ground for all believers to stand on as people of the Spirit. Then verses 4 through 11, we saw that it is the triune God who is at work for the health of the church through the church, or the health of the body through the body, the health of the congregation through the congregation. It emphasizes the work of God in all three persons, The Spirit, verse 4, the Lord, verse 5, God, verse 6, and and they're all at, all three persons of the Godhead are at work 
with distributions of gifts, distributions of ministries, distributions of effects or workings. It's all the work of God in the congregation for the health of the congregation. And it's done according to his own divine design. That's what verse 11 says. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. The distributing there is the same word family as the varieties NASB has in 4, 5, and 6. So it's the distributions, the distributions, the distributions. It is the Spirit who is distributing these things. Right? So God, through his Spirit, is apportioning the gifts that are needed for the church to be healthy, for God's presence via the Spirit to be manifested. Because verse 7 says that each one is given this manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So the Spirit is manifested among us by the use of the gifts and ministries and effects that that God gives. So God's at work among his people by the Spirit for his people. That's the, 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 the difference between the church and any other normal human clustering of people. The church is not just a social group. It's not just a, an organization of people who have sort of like interests and purposes. It is actually the work of God in and among those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. It is a spiritual work that's intended to demonstrate the reality of the true and living God. Because all the way back in verse 2, the idols that they used to worship were mute. That is, they were dead. They couldn't do anything. But the true and living God is not like that. He is actually at work. He is effecting things. He is producing ministry for his people. And so God is different, and that is displayed in the church by this work of God. It's God's work. Now, if we're going to accept and appreciate the diversity, the divine diversity of the church, we have to have a proper view both of the nature of the body and of the work of the Spirit. And that's what verses 12 and 13 teach us. And we're going to look there. I'll I'll mention the rest of the chapter because it's setting the table for it. But notice what God's Word says in verses 12 and 13. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. There's the first part of what we need to see. If we're going to really accept and appreciate what God is doing, it requires a proper view of the nature of the body. And that's what verse 12 is talking about. But also the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. All right, so let's just look at those two verses. First in verse 12, the nature of the body. And this is actually the larger point that the rest of the chapter is going to address. Because the problem, remember at Corinth, was 
they had an, uh, they at least had some folks who were putting an overemphasis on one aspect of the Spirit's work and doing so to the exclusion and probably to, to the, the, uh, the dismissal or prejudice against the other aspects of the Spirit's work, right? Were the special work means the rest of you are not the special work, right? I mean, there's a, a, a sort of uh, uh, arrogance connected to it. So verse 12 uh, operates like this. There's an analogy and then the application of that analogy. Right? And you can see that in the language, and, and it's interesting because it's sort of like what Paul did in Romans 5. Notice in verse 12, for even as, that means he's going to show a, a comparison or an analogy, even as the body, and then look at the last part, so also is Christ. All right, so let's start with the analogy. The analogy here is the human body. So when he says, even as the body is one and as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, he's actually talking about our human bodies. Okay, he's setting that up to base the analogy by which he's going to move to Christ. All right, and here's how he describes the human body. It, it has, there is one body, but it has many parts. And we recognize that, right? I mean, we've got, uh, I mean, we even say it. I mean, it's members, I think is not a bad way to translate it because we talk about members of the body. We don't say it as much because member can mean like members of a group or a society, right? But we, if I said someone was dismembered, right, you would know that meant a part of their body was cut off, right? That's the point of it that the body has parts, and, and that's, that's just the way God made the body, right? And, and, it's an, uh, and it's an amazing and intricate thing that God has designed the human body to function as one with all of these parts working in sync at its best, and we know that that's best because when it's out of sync, we understand that. Right? When some part of our body isn't working, we know that that's something wrong. Right? There's one body, it has many parts. But then he flips it to the other side. And the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. Just because there are many parts doesn't make each part an entity to itself. Right? It is, it is a part of the whole. And that's what gives it its reality. Now, I said he's going to unpack that in the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 14, because the first part of verse 12 is actually reflected in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. Right? Remember 12? The body is one and has many members. So 14 is going to pick up this idea that the body is not just one member, but many. Then drop down to verse 20. Because here comes the second part of the analogy he's going to unpack. Now, there are many members, but one body. So that's why I said verse 12 is really sort of the introduction to the rest of the chapter. It's sort of laying the foundation for the rest of the stuff he's going to say about how the body should function. Well, you can't really appreciate how the body should function unless you understand the dynamic of what the body is, what the nature of the body is. All right, so it's one body with many parts. That's the first part. 
It's all the parts only make up one body. All right? Now here comes, here comes the real point. It's the, it's the other side of the analogy. The end of verse 12, so also is Christ. So also is Christ. And, and most recognize that what he means by that is Christ's body. And the reason I would say that in the text is, look down to verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So Paul, Paul, when he says Christ, is doing uh, what we, I mean, the technical way for describe it is metonymy, right? So if I said the White House said today, you wouldn't picture the White House like the door in the White House going, won't, 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 right? You would know I'm using the White House as a figure of speech to represent the government, right? So it's taking one part and using it for the whole. And so what he's doing here is he's, by drawing our attention to Jesus, he's emphasizing that the body is Christ. He's the head, to use the language of Ephesians chapter 1, right? That the Father gave the Son to be the head of the church, which is his body. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 22 says. And chapter 4 of Ephesians unpacks that, that we're his body, and all the parts of the body are supposed to grow up into him and function the way they ought to. And, and that's not, uh, it's not a new mention for the book of 1 Corinthians. Go back to chapter 10, and, and look what Paul says there about the body. All right, chapter 10 and uh, just so you can pick up the context of it, look at verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Now notice this, verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All right, so to see the connection between verse 16 the body of Christ, and then in 17 he says, we are one body, and he's tying it together. The body of Christ is the one body we are. All right, so we are the body of Christ. Go to chapter 11, when, when he's confronting, in chapter 10 he's confronting the, the problem of them eating at, at idol offerings, in chapter 11, he's confronting the problem of people who are dishonoring uh, the Lord's Supper by the way they're handling it. But And so it's, it's clearly a sin against God, but it's also a sin against the rest of the congregation and, and despising the congregation. Look at verse 22, just so you can see that concept, right? Verse 22 says, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? All right. So when they show up to the, the, the feast that they're having and they're going to commemorate the Lord's death, the people who had resources were eating and drinking and people who didn't were just sort of like left sitting there. And, and Paul's conclusion is like, you're having utter disregard for the church I mean, you have a house to eat and drink in. 
If you need to eat and drink, eat there. Right? But don't show this disregard, despising for the church. Well, he keeps on pushing through it, and he comes back to that. And look what he says in, in verse 29. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, I think uh, some people, must, I think mistakenly, have taken that body to be the body of the Lord because they're talking about the Lord's Supper. But he doesn't actually say, does not judge the body and blood rightly. Right? So he's not actually referring to the Lord's Supper. He's referring to the church. You show up and despise the church of God, you have not judged or viewed the body correctly. You have treated it as something less than what it is. It's the body of Christ. How would you treat it like that? Because you're treating Christ like that. Go back to chapter 12, because that's, I think, the important thing to understand. Since Christ is the head of the body, the church is his body, right? The body has um, an absolute priority here in terms of how we think about it, okay? The church is his body, Christ is the head, the body has parts. He identifies so much with his body and with the parts of the body that to despise the church, right, is to actually have an attitude, sin against Christ that would come under his judgment. That's what chapter 11 says. And that shouldn't surprise us because of what Jesus said to, to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul is going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? To attack those who have been joined to Christ is to attack Christ, is to persecute Christ, is to despise Christ. All right, so, so Paul wants to start with getting them clearly to understand that this isn't just sort of like a functional thing. Hey, do better in how you relate to each other. It's actually a deeply, profoundly strong belief, a doctrine, a truth that has to control the way they look at the church. Right? The church is Christ's body. So how we think about it, how we act toward it, how we operate within it is actually the response of parts to the head. right? And of parts toward other members of their own body. And, and he's going to unpack that in the rest of the chapter and we need to see the significance of that. That then leads him into verse 13, where he talks about the work of the Spirit in relationship to the body. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. I take this as Paul talking about two distinct works of the Spirit 
when I say distinct, it doesn't mean they have no connection to each other, but you can differentiate them. They're not the exact same thing. They're very closely related, right? The first, in the first part of verse 13, is that the spirit is involved in the formation of the body. The spirit is involved in the formation of the body. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, right? Now, um, I mean, in God's providence, I have to tackle Romans 5 and, and uh, federal headship this morning and spirit baptism tonight. So I'm piling up all my theologically difficult concepts on one Sunday. But let me just give you a quick survey of the background to this idea of being baptized uh, in the spirit into the body. In all four of the Gospels, right, there is a statement by John the Baptist that Jesus would baptize people in the Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1. So, so we go back into the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, right at the beginning of it. Remember, John the Baptist says, I baptize you in water. There's one coming who will baptize you in the Spirit. He will baptize you in the Spirit. Okay, so, so at that point, it's future. Right? This will happen when the Messiah comes. We move forward in time throughout all of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. Death and resurrection have happened. Right? Prior to his death, he said to his disciples, it's necessary for me to go because when I go, then another comforter will be sent. Right? After his resurrection, he's teaching his disciples uh, end of Luke, he says, wait in Jerusalem until you be endowed with power from on high, the promise of the Father. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, he says, you will be baptized with the Spirit. Okay, Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Acts chapter 2 happens. All right, there is this incredible outpouring of the Spirit, and, it, and it's the evident work of Jesus Christ, the ascended Messiah, who's poured forth this gift of the Spirit. That's what Acts chapter 2, Peter says, hey, we're not drunk, this is what God's done. It's the work of the Spirit poured out by the Son. All right? Uh, go forward to Acts chapter 10. Peter goes to Cornelius' house and preaches the gospel. They trust in Christ and, and the Spirit is poured out on them. Very next chapter... Peter is explaining this because the Jews at Jerusalem are going like, what are you doing with these Gentiles? And, and Peter tells the, the story of what happened, right? That the God told him to go and not have any respective persons. And I preached. And the same thing that was given to us, Acts 2, happened to them. And Peter, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 16, ties that to the baptism of the Spirit. So now we know Acts 2 was when the predictions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the prediction of Jesus is fulfilled, right? The baptism of the Spirit begins in Acts chapter 2, right? And, and then it happens in succession with each sort of new group that's included into the church. The Gentiles, 
Samaritans, the Gentiles, uh, then the group in Acts 19 that, that are people who only believe the, uh, the, God, the message of John the Baptist, hadn't heard about Jesus or even about a Holy Spirit. And, and so Paul tells them the truth. Right? So, so you have this working of happening throughout the book of Acts, and that's what we see happening, that, that God has now begun the church at Acts chapter 2. Now here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 giving us a theological commentary on what happened in Acts. Right? He is saying, this is what the Spirit did in what we call the baptism of the Spirit. And notice the text. It says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That is, we were brought into the body of Christ by Christ through the Spirit. Okay, and I think, I think, and there's some debate because people like to zero in on prepositions. And, and so Nasby has it by one spirit means the spirit is sort of the instrument or the one, it could be the agent or the instrument. But every occasion through the Gospels, it's Christ who does the baptizing. And so I think it's best to see it as Christ baptizing us with the Spirit into the body. We're brought into union with Christ by the ministry of the Spirit. Notice in the text to whom this applies. We were all baptized into one body. So, it cannot be some kind of secondary work from conversion. Or else that wouldn't apply to the Corinthians, certainly, because if you know the church at Corinth, they weren't all like super saints. Right? So go back to that little step I had. Natural person, carnal Christian, spiritual person, some people like to put this baptism as the bridge between the carnal and the spiritual. But Paul says, all of us were baptized into the body. Right? Every believer has received this blessing from God that the Spirit has taken them and incorporated them into the body of Christ. It's not a secondary work. It's not a special work. That's something that shows up a lot too because of the way the book of Acts records things. There are, and, and I, I don't think we should deny this, and I think the second part of the verse would be a reference to something of this. There, there Obviously, Acts 2 is profoundly uh, powerful. Right? All of a sudden, they're... They're out preaching. God's doing incredible things through them. Uh, the, the work of the Spirit is very dynamic. And so some have taken the word baptism of the Spirit and applied it to some kind of special enablement for ministry. Right? So it's, it's common. I mean, if you, if you ever need something to help put you to sleep, way back in the 90s, I wrote a very long seminary journal article on this issue, 
because it's common for preachers to talk about wanting to have some special endowment and call it a fresh baptism of the Spirit, or I need an anointing or baptism of the Spirit, because that was sort of like the, the, the language that grew up really more in like the 17, 1800s. And so there's this language of like all of a sudden, Lord, baptize him with your power. And start calling that the baptism of the Spirit. But there's no biblical basis for that. That's not the way. Every Christian has been baptized in the Spirit into the body. It's not some, you know, like a, you know, a Mario mushroom that you get and all of a sudden you're like, you get superpowers or something. You, you get big, right? It's not like that. It's actually something that God does. Christ accomplishes through the Spirit to incorporate us into union with Himself to be His body. Every believer has that. We were all baptized into one body. And so we need to, we need to make certain that we don't, uh, we don't get pulled in because, because that's, I said, talked last week about the difference between experientialism and experience, right? Sometimes what happens is people have profound experiences and then they start to use labels that are inaccurate, right? So, I mean, D.L. Moody has the story about some encounter with God while he's in New York City that was radically transforming. Hudson Taylor, if you've ever read his biography, talks about the spiritual secret. There's some kind of radical transformation that happens in that. I am not discounting some some profoundly affecting experience that they had. What I'm saying is, don't label it wrongly. So that now other Christians are going around going, well, I need to get baptized by the Spirit. When in fact, every Christian has been. (laughs) They have been incorporated into the body of Christ by the work of Jesus Christ to to bring them into by the Spirit. It's something that we all have that privilege of enjoying. The same with anointing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we all have an anointing. 1 John 2, 20 and 27, we all have an anointing. If you don't have the anointing of the Spirit, then you're not actually one of God's. If you've not been baptized into the body, then you're not one of Christ's. It's something for all of God's people as a gift of His work to incorporate us into the body, and and that's what we should recognize. It's tied to conversion, because that illustration for us in Acts chapter 10 Peter preaches the gospel and Cornelius and his household respond and that's when they're incorporated into the body of believers. And in fact, the text even tilts toward that to show us that. Look at the language in verse 10, or I'm sorry, verse 13. It's we all are baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Right? There's no distinction between these categories when it comes to incorporation into the body. Same kind of thing is mentioned in Colossians uh, chapter 3, where there's no longer a slave or free man. Right? So, so the body of Christ uh, 
uh, effectively uh, eliminates differences that might have separated people from one another by virtue of faith in Christ and the work of the Spirit. And it also produces a diversity like a body, one body with many parts. And, and so the, the work of the Spirit is tied to that. Notice this, the last part of verse 13, I think, though, introduces a second idea. And it says, and, right? So we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink one spirit. And here, uh, the, the language speaks of something that's taking place in the believer in which we are receiving the fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit's work, right? We're all made to drink of the Spirit in that regard. If I could put it this way, what I would see these two things as being the formation of the body is something that is done to us, right? The drinking of one Spirit is something being done in us, right? So it's not just that, that Jesus took us by the Spirit and put us in the body, and, and now we're in the body. But actually, also, the Spirit of God came to dwell in us. We have all drunk of the same Spirit. We all are indwelled. If we're in Christ, we're all indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes to dwell in us, accompanying Him is life, and the gifts that we need for service, the power that we need for sanctification, everything that God is going to do in us comes in connection to the presence of the Spirit in us. And the same thing is true for the body, right? That's true of each part, but also for the whole body. What Christ is going to accomplish in the body is because the Spirit has come to dwell in the body, bringing life and gifts, and power, right? So, so we have received the Spirit so that we might be able to serve Him. At conversion, He placed us into the body, and we received the Spirit. So we now are people of the Spirit who form the body of Christ, and that's the work that He's talking about. All right, so let me... Let me uh, let me just sort of zero in on why this is so important. If, if we're going to properly honor Jesus Christ, we must think rightly about his body. Right? It's his body. Right? So, so if we're going to honor Christ, we have to have the right view of his body in that regard. So, so we could say at least a few things. First is this, is that unity in the body does not mean uniformity. Right? The whole point of the passage is, is not all the parts are the same. Right? So there are actually supposed to be, there's supposed to be differences and diversity. Right? It's, it, when we talk unity, we're not talking uniformity. We're talking uh, one in the body functioning according to the plan of God for the body. And that's really important. And that diversity exists for the health of the body. Right? He's gonna, we're going to see it more fully in the verses ahead, but, but 
God made us with two eyes, and the best function of the body is two eyes, and the eye needs help from the ear, and, and the hands and the feet work together. A healthy body requires all the parts functioning, and that means I need to think that way. Romans 12 actually ties this to the issue of humility. Right? We should not depreciate the value of the other parts of the body or else we are proud and not humble. Okay, And, and so here's the thing you, not, you need to recognize. And I'll, I'll just, I mean, I, I'll, use, I'll use my kind of situation just illustrative, right? So, so I have a teaching gift. So the tendency is to be very, you know, at least my, mine's probably like teacher and semi-lawyer-like, right? So I have a tendency to like want to really cut things right, correct. I can viscerally flinch when I hear bad theology expressed. I mean, it's just like I, 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 I can be like that's, that's sort of, hey, it's got to be right, right? Now, here's the thing is not everybody has the teaching gift. And you know what? That's actually good. That's God's design. Right? Because there are some people who, let's say, take the language of Romans 12, have mercy. And, and so their first response to somebody expressing something isn't to go, eh, you know, you probably need to tighten that up a little theologically. Right? It's to move in mercy. And, and here's, here, here's where the kind of thing that this text would be helping us think through in Romans 12, is if the people with the teaching gift look at the mercy people and go, bunch of feeling-oriented do-gooders. Right? We need truth, not feeling. Or if the mercy people look at the teachers and go, you guys are just a bunch of rigid you know, arrogant people. Then, then here's, here's what Romans 12 would say. Neither of them is humble. Because if you don't appreciate the other gifts that Jesus has put in the Bible or a body, then you actually think you know better than Jesus. I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. You're effectively saying to, to God, why didn't you give us four feet? Or why didn't you give us four hands? Why didn't you give us four eyes instead of two eyes and two ears? Right? You're basically saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. Everything should have been like me. And that's the arrogance of it, is that we're actually thinking our gift, our gifting, our serving is the most important kind. And it shows up in how we view the other. Right? It also might show up by whether or not we're pushing toward unity or whether we're pushing away from it. Right? The first is to discount the many. The second is to discount the one. 
See, if we're pushing toward many to the fracturing of one, then we actually are elevating diversity above the unity that Christ wants in the body. So we have to hold both of those in check in submission to Christ. Do we appreciate the diversity designed for health and do we work for its unity? And I think a part of what Paul is driving at is this, is that the treatment of the parts is actually the treatment of Christ. It's his body. Right? So, so when, you, when you sin against some brother or sister in Christ in the body, you're actually sinning against Christ. When you despise some brother or sister in the body, you are actually despising Christ. And we like to put a wall between that. No, I love Jesus. I just can't stand Christians. But the scriptures won't let us do that because we're his. It's his body. We've all been placed in the body by the work of Christ through the Spirit, and we all share the same Spirit. So our heart should be toward the body that every part matters because it matters to Christ. It's his. And so we love him, so we love the parts of the body. We want to honor him, so we show honor to the parts of the body. I hope we'll think about that, right? Next time we're inclined to have a heart that strikes out against somebody or words that tear into somebody or actions that dishonor somebody that will think he is Christ, she is Christ. If I love my Lord, I will love his body and treat it with the kind of love that I would show to Jesus himself. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you so much for your truth. Help us to, to have our minds washed and, and cleansed and saturated uh, by it. Uh, there's, there's so much um, that runs contrary to our natural way of thinking that we need to have uh, rewiring, really. And we're grateful that we have the work of the Spirit to do that, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that the Word can work to straighten out the crooked parts of our thinking, to bend our hearts and wills in line with yours. Lord, would you, would you give us a deeper appreciation of what the church is, what the, the assembly of God's people is as the body over which Jesus Christ is the head. We ask this in his name. Amen.